Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 24th, 2022. And outside of the Ukraine, we are dominated when it comes to headlines with the fear of inflation, with a return to the 1970s. Helen Thompson, the professor of political economy from Cambridge University, was on the show a couple of weeks ago. She has a book out about hard times, a return to the 1970s, to the stagflationary times. Um, Fed officials uh, yesterday talked about... um, Fighting inflation, inflation, inflation. Three words all beginning with I. Larry Summers, who's supposed to be one of the wise men of economics, although not everybody likes him, uh, warns that inflation outlook is pretty grim. Uh, And some people believe that it might even resemble the 1940s rather than the 70s. I'm not sure whether the 40s are worse or better than the 70s. They're certainly longer ago, so we remember them even less. One man, a fellow called Bill Gross, uh, is warning us that the federal rate rises, which were announced a day or two ago, will crack the U.S. economy. Uh, Bill Gross, who is the founder of the investment house PIMCO, told the FT um, that uh, these rates will crack the economy. Uh, He is suggesting that um, investors are being lured into dreamland, this guy Bill Gross suggests, about um, uh, global central bank's decision to continue pumping up the world economy. Uh, Bill Gross may be an expert on dreamland. Uh, He's certainly warning us about the possibility uh, of stagflation. Bill Gross is indeed the subject of our conversation today. Uh, Not his vision of inflation and dreamland, but his own life as the Bond King, uh, how one man made a market, built an empire and lost it all. But my guest today, Mary Childs, who's talking to us from Richmond, Virginia, another place which is perhaps in dreamland. Uh, Mary, welcome. You are also the presenter of NPR's Planet Money, so a much more professional broadcaster than myself. I hope I won't embarrass myself. Your book, the new book on uh, Bill Gross, uh, how The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, built an empire and lost it all. Uh, The guy's really smart, isn't he? I mean, whatever one thinks of him morally, psychologically, he gets the market as well as anyone. Is that fair, do you think? I think that's right. Yeah, I think he really does. He was a psych major in college. And I think an understanding of human psychology is super. It's, you know, you have to know the math stuff, but you also have to understand and appreciate the way humans behave, because those two things are, are not always in concert. So yeah, I think he he talks, you know, in very esoteric terms sometimes about the Taylor rule and the, you know, this paradigm being, you know, a new interest rate, you know, he has all of these kind of intellectual um, leanings when he's talking about the bond market. But there is also this other side to him that I think is super powerful where he's been able to explicate the bond market and make it accessible for all these years. And that's in part what has made him such a great marketer, which is in large part why he's been so successful. 
So let's get into the details of of this man they call the Bond King. Um, he made an air, he made a, a fortune, lost it. What exactly is a Bond King, and how did he do this? Was he the first man to really understand the potential of the Bond market? I think that's pretty fair. You know. People credit him with the creation of the modern bond market, wherein we trade, actively trade bonds. When he started out his career, bonds were just pieces of paper, you know, promissory notes, basically, that lived in the vaults of, you know, asset managers or insurance companies, in his case, uh, where he worked. And he, and along with other people, of course, because you certainly can't trade by yourself, he and his cohort kind of created this world in which they traded bonds. And that was actually a radical idea at the time. You know, there wasn't this idea of price appreciation. You kind of just clipped the coupons off the bottom of the little certificate and you got your money back at the end. It was super sleepy. And he helped to kind of radicalize or revolutionize that that entire market and create this dynamic, extremely dynamic, perhaps too dynamic bond market that um, that provides us such delight today. Mary, the opposite of a bond is a share. Is that fair? Opposites, uh, they're, I think of them like siblings, kind of, you know, like like but, maybe the bond is the older sibling. They don't necessarily like one another. Oh, no, they definitely rough and tumble. Yeah, they kind of squabble over assets. I think it's. I think that kind of works, yeah. So so we know what a stock is. You you buy, I, I could go online to E-Trade. I could buy uh, a, a, a share in Apple or Amazon or uh, another big tech company. And then I would be rewarded if that stock went up and down. What is a bond? Is that something that's issued by a government or can anyone issue a bond? Basically, anyone can issue a bond. You know, you and I, you know, homeowners, you know, in mortgages are basically bond issuers. So, you know, if in that case, you know, in the example that you gave, you're buying a share of Apple. There's there's something called the capital structure, which is just kind of the the building of different ways of financing that companies have access to, right? And there's an order of operations in that where you know the money kind of is supposed to start at the top and come down each each rung of that and each level. So the the shares, you know, equity is kind of at the bottom of that. It's like the least influential in this capital structure. Above that is the bond tier. So basically, if I'm Apple and I've promised my, you know, bond holders that I'm going to do this, this or this, or that they're going to get this interest payment, I do that before I, you know, distribute any dividends or anything like that. They're basically first in line. If we're thinking of them as siblings, it's a very hierarchical family. So an older and a younger brother or probably an older brother and a younger sister. A yeah. bond then is a kind of security, isn't it? You might take my bond if um if I'm offering, for example, my San Francisco house in exchange for something else, something that mm -hmm. can be securitized. Is that fair? That's right. Yeah. So and say you, you know, fail to make your payments, you break the promises in that document, in that bond document. And then I have a claim on your asset. I, I get to take it under certain circumstances if I want to or I just sell it. So give me some dates on 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 the career of, of Bill Gross, the Bond King. Are you suggesting that before him, bonds weren't traded they were simply security which sat in a vault and then he understood yeah. that you could actually sell bonds how, how did that work how, so I, I i've securitized my home he would sell that to someone else is that how mm -hmm. it worked yeah exactly so 
you know, when you issue a bond, when you get a mortgage or Apple sells bonds, that's the primary market, right? That's where the, the first thing happens. But Bill and his peers created a secondary market, more or less, where, you know, you, you aren't actually interacting with Apple in this case. It's me trading with Bill Gross or whoever. And it's, you know, the actual company doesn't necessarily get to be involved in those trades, in those agreements. You know, they don't have a say over who buys their bonds. Well, so, it's selling, uh, and, and, and sorry to interrupt this. Not at all. Was the the buying and selling of mortgages, was this a, a piece of that market? Absolutely. Yes. So, yeah, mortgage backed securities. You know, we may remember this this phrase from the financial crisis because it was definitely at the epicenter of that crisis. Um, but basically, you know, my mortgage, your mortgage, whoever's mortgage gets zooped up into this pool, a larger pool of a bunch of mortgages. And that gets kind of packaged up real nice and, and cut up real nice. And people like and including Bill Gross and PIMCO buy those slices. And, you know, you can kind of pick and choose based on, you know, risk or, or you know, perceived uh, odds of people paying their loans back. Uh, but in this, you know, this is a sort of the one of the real areas where PIMCO and Bill Gross made their name and, you know, managed to outperform. They were very early to this market. You know, it was it, there was some, you know, they, they owned an actually substantial portion of the mortgage backed securities market in the 1980s. And I think other people were kind of less comfortable you know, their competitors didn't have um, the kind of curiosity and expertise that PIMCO had, and they were slower to get to the market and maybe less confident in the market. And PIMCO basically was able to reap the rewards of that um, for a long time. Mary, how much of this is bound up with regulation? Uh, we've done a lot of shows about neoliberalism. Next week, I have the another historian, Gary Gerstel, on the show has written a really interesting book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, which is about the deregulation yeah. of everything from healthcare and prisons to uh, the economy and media. To what extent was the opportunity created for somebody like Gross by the deregulation of the financial marketplace? It's such an interesting question because it's a there it's a it's a an ebbing and flowing I think too where you know I was just thinking about the creation the very early days of Pimco when they were just a corporate shell within a larger insurance company a parent company and at that time they weren't really this you know enormous influential thing they were just a little baby company but it was right when ERISA was passed, the regulation that helped to standardize and formalize the mutual fund industry and really create the management industry that we know today. And this is, you know, this was in 1974. And that, and, you know, PIMCO had a little bit of a track record at that time, just enough so that people who were managing, you know, these pension funds at these different companies, they had to go find an external manager. And there was PIMCO with a little bit of a track record. And they're like, okay, this seems great. So they really had that wind at their backs from a regulatory perspective of, you know, new and increased regulations, right? So that was a lucky break for them. But then on the flip side, yeah, I mean, the the enormous credit creation, the enormous, you know, run up in financialization in the American economy, I do think a lot of that and the innovation in financial products for better or worse, all of that, you know, you can trace that back to policymaking and regulations and deregulation. And I do think that there, you know, that ebbs and flows so much over the years, and and you can kind of see their fortunes ebb and flow with it. The Bond King, of course, uh, has at least from a, a progressive point of view, it has a, a rather chilling quality to it. Um, I'm not sure if it was meant initially as a compliment <laughs> or a criticism, but there were other Bond Kings too, weren't there? I mean, Michael Milken, many other of the the Wall Street geniuses, quote unquote, who created this 
unregulated or deregulated financial market, what you call financialization, were around at its creation. Why? Why is um, why why is Gross so important? Why was he known as the Bond King as opposed to maybe just another Bond prince? <laughs> well, it's funny because you're right. Like the the spheres of influence overlap and are different. You know, Mike Milken was the Junk Bond King, um, a title that I don't think he liked, and and none of these titles are super embraced. I should note. You know, Bill says he never called himself the Bond King, um, and it was just a, a media title. But you know, that being said. The, the markets that Bill was so influential in and the markets where he played for so long are just standard bond, you know, markets. It's the government bond market, the treasury market, it's which is enormous. It's, you know, corporates, investment grade, high quality corporate bonds and to some extent junk bonds, but less so. Right. So Milken was kind of in this lane and. I don't, it's impossible to really compare their legacies and their influence because Milken is just like such an enormous figure in financial markets and the kind of, he's very revered in the industry, but in a different segment from Bill, I think, you know, there's overlap. Certainly we're all, you know, this is all the credit world. This is all the kind of um, fixed and floating income world. But I do think that, that they just are speaking different languages fundamentally. You know, Milken was more kind of on the LBO, like, uh, barbarians at the gate buy outside of the world where Bill is just trading in the market. It's a bit more, it sounds more vanilla, but of course he was also like very, very enthusiastic and derivatives and complexity in that way. So I don't know that I answered that, you know, they're like, they're, it's just, it's apples and oranges to some way. Everything's apples and oranges, Mary. So true. We have to, you know, and some people like apples more than oranges. Some people put apples over oranges. It's part of your mm -hmm. sibling rivalry thing. We have a book coming up in a couple of months by a fellow financial journalist David Gellies, The Man mm. Who Broke Capitalism, a book about how Jack Welsh gutted the heartland. Uh, did or has, um, has, has Gross, did he gut capitalism? Can he be described as, as breaking capitalism? Does he have some responsibility for the compounding inequality for all the various crises of American capitalism? Uh, in the 21st century? Or is he just a financial trader who got lucky and then kind of got unlucky? Okay, so both, such a cop-out. But I think the answer is it's it's hard to pin all of it on one person, right? There's no counterfactual where I know what the world looks like without a Bill Gross or a Jack Welch in it, of course. That said, I do think that, you know, he has talked for decades about the effects of, you know, deregulation and taxes and all of these different kind of regulatory regimes that he's lived and invested through. And he's talked about how he thinks it's unfair that yes, he has benefited basically on the backs of people giving him their retirement money to invest. You know, that's how he became a billionaire. And there are so many like him who are investing on behalf of widows, retired firefighters, you know, people that that aren't really supposed to, you know, like, how is that the foundation for the, for multiple, many, many people's billions, you know, there's something a bit odd about that, that that's contributed to the inequality, right? Like, it feels like that shouldn't have happened. Um, so I think, a, I mean, to be, to be fair, and I'm not a great defender of gross, it's not a Ponzi scheme. He's not burning no. Oh, no, no, I don't mean to imply that at all. No, he's literally managing money for these people and investing into the market. And the argument is, is he's going to invest it better than the next guy, right? Like he's going to outperform in the market and that will make you, firefighter, richer in some measure. Now, 
it's a little weird because, you know, I keep referencing this. I read this book from the 1940s called Where are the Customer's Yachts. And it comes from this Gilded Age joke where, you know, they're at the, the tip of Manhattan and they're looking out and a tourist is, you know, looking at all the yachts and he's like, wow, this is amazing. They're like, that's the banker's yacht. There's the broker's yacht. There's the, you know, and they're pointing and the guy's like, well, bankers, brokers, where's the customer's yachts? And they're like, like it's funny because the customers can't afford yachts because actually investing in these businesses does not generate the wealth that running these businesses does. So what's your point? <laughs> um, you know, you can't say the word scam because that's right. implies fraud. It's so not I'm not going to say that. No one's pretending it's a scam, but I mean, it's, it's not a scam. Gross. You know, you talk about the firefighters and the old ladies, but they choose to invest their money in a, in a fund of some sort or another. And they can For take sure. money out if they want to. Absolutely. But then what are they going to day trade it? Like what, what's the alternative? They well, don't they have access to hedge in, funds, which also are not necessarily that, covered I mean, in glory. the difference between what Bill Gross was doing, say at PIMCO and the more kosher investment houses like a Merrill Lynch? Well, I don't even know that PIMCO was not, I mean, they're, they're certainly falling within legal limits. You know, I'm not, I don't mean to imply that, you know, whatever um, condemnation I feel like I, or, 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 you know, judgment I might reserve for PIMCO, it's not just PIMCO. Like, I think that they're emblematic of the larger asset management industry in this way, where, yeah, I don't know, you kind of, I just feel like they're, it's universally accepted that fees have been too high for too, for a very long time. And certainly they've come down a lot. So people are like, oh, we fixed it. We fixed it. And I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe maybe we're going to all I mean, become... Your critique is not so much about the, 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 the fees. It's about the very structure. I mean, what, well, under, what, yeah. what he discovered was the key to making a huge amount of wealth through trading bonds. Yes. And through... Yes, that's right. And whether he charges, you know, half a percent or three quarters of a percent isn't really the issue, is it? Well, it's an issue for sure. Yeah, I think it's an issue. I think it it matters because over time, you know, people in finance always talk about the power of compounding. And that's especially powerful when you think about, you know, the fees that you're paying, that, that people are scraping off your money that you get back, right? Every, if every year you lose that that little percentage, it may not seem like a lot up front, but over time, it definitely adds up. We are in dreamland. With Mary Childs, the author of The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All, Dreamland, and then, I guess, Nightmare Land. <laughs> uh, Mary um, is well known to many of you. She's also the, uh, what are you, the producer, the presenter? Of I'm a co-host. You're the co-host. A co-host, uh, yeah. There are like five of us, six. Yeah, I need a yeah. co-host. Um, <laughs> it's great to have one, I got to tell you. Yeah, well, we're going to take, because I don't have a co-host, we're going to take a break now. 60 seconds, Mary, and then we're going to come back. And I want to talk about Bill Gross, the man, if there is a man there, what he's like, uh, and whether we should really feel sorry for him losing all his money. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with Mary Childs, the author of The Bond King. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional 
uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Mary Childs, the author of The Bond King, um, a biography of Bill Gross, uh, the, the original Bond King. Uh, many of you will be familiar with his uh, image. Uh, he's often plastered across the media. Um, and and, and um, this photo in particular is mm -hmm. wonderful uh, for people not watching. Here we have an image of... Bill Gross playing Jack Nicholson. And I think when the movie is made about Bill Gross, Nicholson, I hope, will play Gross. Uh, it's a good pick. Yeah? Was yeah. He, is he a bit like Nicholson? I mean, you you spent a lot of time with the guy. You spent years researching this fellow. Is he interesting yeah. or just a kind of financial yahoo? No, he's super interesting. I just, people are, are telling me, oh, your next book should be about this finance guy. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, Bill Gross is very reflective and self-aware, but then not at all self-aware, you know, like he just has a lot. He takes the time to think about himself and like not in a dumb way. You know, there are a lot of financial titans who don't do, don't do this degree of reflection and, and thinking about the, their effect on the world or, or aren't as candid about it. He's, he's long been very, very candid about, you know, what he thinks of, of his life, his job. And he always does these like basically confessionals. He has a monthly investment outlook, he calls it. It's like a newsletter about what he thinks is going on in the markets. But the first, you know, 300, 500 words are always just a wild personal anecdote. And sometimes they're like real head scratchers. Like you're like, oh, okay, why is your female cat stalking you in and out of the shower? Should we think about that or never think about that again? Yeah. It, what should progressives make of, of Mary? You work at NPR, so you have a lot of progressive listeners. We did a show uh, last month with Peter Osnos, who has edited a really interesting new book about George Soros, mm. uh, A Life in Full, survivor, billionaire, speculator, philanthropist, philosopher, political activist, nemesis of the far right, global citizen. I'm not sure if if Gross is nemesis of the far right, but mm -mm. most of those things too. I mean, he didn't survive the, uh, the Holocaust. What's the difference between a man like Soros and Bill Gross? Soros, that's a tough one because I feel like Soros has has begun to take up or or began a long time ago to take up this place in like the uh, 
cultural imagination that Bill just never reached. Yeah, he's everywhere. He's become everywhere. It's a boogeyman. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I do think like that's very unlucky. Like I don't, you know. I think there are reasons for, you know, breaking the um, the pound and, and other things like there are reasons for that, for him being kind of in the mainstream consciousness. But Bill Gross has really not broken through in that way. You know, for the most part, when I hear lay people who are, you know, people who are not in finance, when they ask me about him, they're like, oh, is it that guy with the really crazy divorce? Oh, is it that guy who was harassing his neighbor? And, you know, there's some recency bias to that because those have happened in, in kind of recent years. But it is, I think his, he hasn't been linked to any, you know, major, he also doesn't do as much political donating, you know, as Soros does and has done and um, has kind of managed to stay out of the um, political fray. Um, I think his, his, well, they did work for Obama for a while. I mean, his politics are certainly closer to Obama than to Trump, isn't? Aren't they? I think that's right. Yeah, he has. Um, I think he may still be registered as a conservative, uh, as a Republican in California. But um, I think you know he's he. I think he thinks of himself as pretty centrist. So that might be part of it too. Is if you're not strongly advocating for one side or another, you know, maybe you you do stay out of the fray. But. And Soros, I don't know. There's like a whole nother. I got to read that book, basically. I feel like there's yeah. like it's a... My point is, is, that, is that progressives in particular seem a little morally inconsistent when it comes to these successful financial people. Like, you know, if Soros right. gives the money back to liberal causes, he's good. If he doesn't, right. then he isn't. Right. right. Um, and we're like, I love a good billionaire. Right. Completely. We as a society... Be, I mean, Mary, you're, 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 you're co-host of... of, of planet money is there such a thing as a good billionaire i love this question i think we struggle with this not at planet money necessarily i don't we don't really like take a stand on on that um but i think we as a society do have a hard time understanding what we think of our billionaires you know we have this hero worship where we're proud of them we want to american dream it like they did we want to you know be, everyone kind of thinks in this country that they're about to be a billionaire not everyone but I think there's a sense that if you regulate or tax billionaires more, that all of a sudden it'll close the door and I won't get to be the next one. You know, I think I I kind of believe that. So I think that's I don't think that's conscious for sure, but I do think that there's this like cultural optimism and hero worship and you know this idea that that whatever they did they must have done something right because they have all this money. I don't know, like a lot of those we also like to see them fall. We also really, really enjoy a, a downfall story. So, and... we should, uh, so we should like this story because he rose and fell. Thank there's you. A, I don't know if there's a Hollywood <laughs> quality, maybe a biblical quality to this story. Mm. There was a man who made a fortune and then lost it because, would it be fair to say, his own hubris? Well, so he still has his money. I will say he is still a billionaire. He still has, I want to say the estimate is $1.5 billion. But he doesn't have PIMCO anymore. He doesn't have PIMCO. He lost the empire that he built. And he certainly has kind of an entirely new life relative to what he had, you know, five, seven years ago. So the world that he worked so hard to create, you know, the systems, the regiment, he was very, he's a, he's kind of the kind of person who likes to have a really set routine. And he basically was upended out of his own routine. So I think, and, you know, his personal relationships have suffered in the past couple of years. Obviously, there was this ugly divorce a couple of years ago. Um, so I think like, yeah, he he is, it is a sympathetic story. I think in the end, I've gotten a lot of feedback from people who were not positioned to like him necessarily, who thought that he was mean or thought that he was erratic and kind of out there, you know, had their own opinions coming into reading the book. And by the end of the book, they were like, 
weird. I feel bad for the guy. I'm sympathetic. I feel like I understand him a little bit better and I feel sorry for what's happened to him. So that I, I'm glad that the book can bring nuance to this situation because it really isn't so black and white. You you talked about his his various ups and downs in his personal life. Here's a New York Post um, headline. Bond King Bill Gross slapped with restraining um, order. Mm -hmm. Apparently, he bullied his neighbor over a million-dollar lawn sculpture. He had a particularly ugly divorce. Um, Is he just another rich guy who thinks that he's a monarch, this Bond King, who behaves like a king, even if he lives in in a republic or supposed to live in a republic? Supposed to, right. I mean, I do think there's an element of losing track of what you have power over and what you don't. And Bill is incredibly competitive. And like when he gets stuck in a relationship where he's like trying to prove something to someone else, he just he digs in like he doesn't, as he puts it, he doesn't back down from a fight. So he got in this spat with his neighbor and it just escalated. And it kept, you know, the thing that I find so interesting about this is, well, one of the many things is that, you know, he started playing music at all hours. And he and his wife, and they were playing, you know, 50 Cent. They were playing Gilligan's Island theme song. They were playing the theme song to Green Acres, all these songs. And it was very loud, but it was right at the legal limit of loud. So at 60 decibels, that's what you're allowed to do in Laguna. So he's like, what? What's the problem? We're just enjoying music. What's your, is there a problem? And I actually found that a bit like gratifying in a way because my reporting had showed that he and Pimco were very comfortable walking right up to the legal limit and being like, do you have a problem? And that like, here he is doing that in his personal life. So that was sort of, um, I was like, yes, I got that. I, that's that's the guy so I you know. Think that, but in particularly in terms of this restraining order, that the neighbor was perhaps an even bigger pain than he is. Oh, I don't know. I mean, Bill and Amy also sued the neighbor um, and alleged invasion of privacy because the neighbor had been filming um, Bill and Amy. And like, I don't know, these houses are kind of right on top of each other. And if you don't get along with your neighbor, like as a New Yorker, uh, former New Yorker, I like very much value the anonymity of my neighbors in a way where I was able to move through my apartment buildings a bit, you know, I'd be like, hey, hey, but I didn't have to like make friends with anyone. And now I live in a neighborhood where I'm like, hello, Ben, like I have to, I'm accountable to them in some way that it's like, it's, I don't know. I know that's not a novel inter- like concept to introduce, but it, it these houses are enormously beautiful and very expensive, but right on top of each other. And if you're going to get in a fight with Bill Girl, I mean, these are these are also like wealthy people that are accustomed to having some degree of control in their life and they can't control the air. You know, they don't control the airspace of the house next door to them. So it's it's kind of ripe for dispute. Mary, we had another of your uh, financial yes, Peter. Um, colleagues, Peter Goodman, on the show. He has a really interesting new book out about the Davos rich. Mm-hmm. What does what what does Gross think about all this inequality between a few billionaires like himself and the rest of us? Does he does he talk to you about that? He actually has talked to everyone about that. He has written the you know one, some of these monthly investment outlooks. He's addressed this issue, and he does seem to be you know he has said that capitalism isn't working. He has said that you know his sympathies are more with the plight of labor than with capital. Um, which I found kind of striking. Um, I think I think he is, you know, it's one thing to be aware of a problem and to say, I think something should be done about this. But then there's like a follow on, right? Like, what are you going to do about it? 
And I don't know that, I mean, do I think every billionaire should renounce their wealth and donate it all? I mean, maybe, but <laughs> I'm sort of, but like, there is like an interesting, yeah, he's aware of it. He says it's a problem. I, I think a lot of them say that. I think a lot of them are like, boy, it's really reached a, a, an acute point here, right? And this was actually the, a big topic of conversation at the Milken conference a couple years ago. Um, Mike Milken hosts this extremely prestigious and, and very good conference where all the most influential people gather. And they were talking about inequality as if it was this, you know, I think Ray Dalio was like, this might be the ingredients for like a civil war. So you know, it's something, you know, there's some kind of like revolution potentially fomenting here because you you see that, you know, in throughout history in the lead up to extreme times of political tumult. Yeah, and we've and, done a lot of shows about it. Does, does, yeah. does Bruce, do you think, care as an American, as a father, as a citizen, or simply because he's worried someone might burn his house down and kill him? <laughs> um, that question was so beautiful. I might just let it stand. I think he's, you know, both. Who knows? I don't know an answer to that. I think he... Um, I'm sure he, he cares also intellectually. I think he is to some extent a student of history. All of these guys are, uh, finance people, you know, look back to look forward a lot, um, you know, as we all do, but I think it doesn't prov provide some instruction for like market patterns. Um, and I think that he does feel some degree of responsibility, um, and, and, um, maybe guilt. Maybe that has something to do with his critique of cheap money. Uh, we mm -hmm. had another of your mm -hmm. financial journalists, Chris Len Christopher Leonard, on the show. Uh, his book, The Lords of Easy Money, is a critique of, um, uh, of, the, uh, of the Fed. Uh, it's interesting that his book's called The Lords of Easy Money. Yours is The Bond King, all these aristocratic terms to define Quite. people in Wall Street. Are you concerned about, like, like Bill Gross, about this easy money? Do you think it's about to actually break the economy? Oh, gosh. Um I don't know. I mean, I do think that it's such a hair trigger economy. You know, our markets are so, so attuned to um, what the Federal Reserve is doing and will do in central banks around the world. And that's to some extent always, you know, been the case for decades. And the, the Fed's toolkit has expanded so much. Um, you know, every time there's a crisis, we kind of add another tool that the Fed can use and we never really take it away. So like, is that is that something that we meant to do and that we want? To, is that the the world we want to live in? You know, you're you were asking a minute ago about like what I think about capitalism, and I'm increasingly of the view that like I don't think it is a real. I think it's only an abstraction where any real attempts at capitalism, like there's always going to be regulation to some extent. There's no such thing as a free market. You know, I think towards the end of his life, I heard I haven't confirmed this, so call me if you know the answer, people. But I heard that Milton Friedman like renegotiated or or kind of reckoned with his own previous views on racism. He kind of thought that the market would solve it. And then towards the end of his life, I heard that he was like, I don't know that that's right. Maybe the market won't solve it. Maybe this is actually not, you know, so there are, I don't understand. So the market, so Mr. Free Market used yeah. to think that racism would be kind of evaporated. Not racism, just general racism. Sure. Yes. General racism that the market would not allow it because like whoever was the best provider of, you know, groceries or whatever would simply be the best. And everyone would acknowledge this and go to the person with the best groceries or whatever the thing is. And I think, you know, he, he just had this argument that, of course, economics has come a long way and it used to be much more theoretical and far more divorced from reality. And we've started to be more empirical in the past couple of decades. And in doing so, I think we've learned a lot about what we got wrong. And Milton Friedman kind of, you know, 
died before a lot of this this revolution of of empiricism. But um, in that, I think he was. I think he kind of realized. And again, like I'm I'm a little talking out of school because I haven't confirmed this. But I heard that he was like, I I do think that I got that wrong. That to some extent, you know there's no, there's no mechanism for the market to correct for human biases like that. You know, those biases, and now I'm just speaking for me, not Milton, rest in peace, where like, we don't necessarily create systems that are better than us. We just replicate what we do and who we are in these systems. So powerful people will simply replicate their biases in the power, you know, in the structures that they control. And that's not great. That's not, that's no, not what... Be, so you're suggesting we really don't have any agency over these complicated financial markets that no one, not even Bill Gross, understands. I think we could. I think we could have more agency over it. I think we've been... It's it's hard to do, but I think we could be more intentional and more strategic. And we've been very laissez-faire, so to speak, and, and kind of allowed a lot of what we call free market, um, you know, unfettering but i'm not sure that we've done it in the healthiest way i'm i'm sure that we haven't done it in the healthiest way well finally uh, mary we've agreed that jack nicholson will play <laughs> bill gross in the, Did movie, we agree? the hollywood movie i um, think it I should be steve buscemi yeah i hope you'll have a walk on roll but um thank you that's kind but borrowing from uh, fitzgerald does does gross have another act a second act in him or is he done Oh gosh, I would not count this man out. I feel like, you know, I started writing this book in 2014 and I thought that it was done, you know, I thought the narrative would end in 2014 and he has continued to do stuff. And at first I started, you know, I was going to try to ignore the stuff, but he just, the stuff became so, you know, enormous and newsworthy and it was what people cared about. And I ended up having to incorporate it. So I will, you know, he's, he has not, um, ever ceased to surprise me. So I would really, I the only thing I think you can count on is not being able to count on what he'll do next. Have you forgiven him for forcing you to write this book? The thing, <laughs> Blaming him, how one man made a He's market, so built an empire and lost it all. Bill Gross, if you're watching, you're to blame for Mary dedicating, <laughs> what, eight years of your life to it? Yeah, seven, yeah, almost eight, yeah. Well, he owes you big time, Mary. You definitely like need to walk on part in the movie. Thank you. Um, so the book is out. Finally, after seven or eight years, it's an important book about another major figure in, in, in Wall Street, the Bond King, about Bill Gross, how one man made a market, built an empire and lost it all. What else, Mary, should people be reading to make sense of the world these days? Oh, man. Well, yes, um, I'm reading. I personally am reading Empire of Pain. Um, uh, I haven't yeah, started it yet. So I feel, that. yeah, He's you're right. too. Yeah, he's amazing. So um, I read Say Nothing, and it's just staggering the amount of uh, exactitude and precision in his reporting. So I'm excited to read it. I have only just um, gotten it, so I'm I'm sort of um, ahead of myself here. But um, yeah, another pick one the one that's like stuck in my head. It's not you know I did an article for LitHub of finance books that aren't really finance books, and the one that um, is I read most recently is Luster, and it's not you know you're not going to learn about bond trading, but you are going to think a lot about like economic disparities and precarity and gig economy and you know the the ways that money changes our relationships with each other, and it's just a beautiful book. So those would be my that's what I'm reading. Gross didn't have the same sort of aristocratic aspirations of a Sackler, did he? He doesn't want museums, whole 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 wings of your museums named after him. He doesn't care about that sort of thing. Well, he, yeah, he's more of a hospital wing guy. He's donated a lot to hospitals. So there are a lot of like, you know, 
uh, gross uh, wings of hospitals. So no joke about gross wings of hospitals. But next uh, time you're in hospital, everyone, and you you find yourself in the gross wing, uh, <laughs> you need to pick up uh, Mary that. Child's new book, The Bond King, which is just out. Mary, congratulations on the book. Finally, we're Thank asking so everyone much. this. Uh, Mary Child's author and uh, broadcaster. Mary, you're as well positioned as anyone on this one. Who runs the world? Who's in charge in March 2022, Mary Child? With that framing, it's so hard not to start singing Beyonce, but I'm going to actually stay on brand here and go with Jerome Powell because there was recently a Bill Gross op-ed in the Financial Times saying that the new Bond Kings are the central bankers, that they the actually- The lords of easy them. money, the, the lord That's of right. easy money, Jerome That's Powell. That's right. Good, good, good call. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank and you. Congratulations again on the book. Thank you. It's been a delight.